0: Think back with me, and here's the scene I want you to think about. Your parents are going out for the evening. Maybe they're leaving you with a babysitter, or your grandparents, or maybe close family friends. And what's the last thing that they say to you before they walk out the door? Or if you're a parent, what's the last thing that you say to your kids before you walk out the door? The parting words of every parent to their child before they leave them with somebody else. Be good. (laughs) Right? But does being good simply mean following all the rules that our parents have given us? Or is there something more to it than that? Is it only important that we follow the rules? Or is it important why we follow the rules? Or how we follow the rules? I don't know about you, but I know I've been in situations before where I followed the rules, but with less than the best attitude or with maybe less than the best motives. I've done what is required, I've checked the box, but was it really good? And was I really good? What does it mean to be good? As we continue to consider the decisions that we make when we find ourselves at crossroads in our lives, as we continue to ask ourselves how we're supposed to walk forward from those crossroads, if we're going to reach God's desired destinations for our lives, if we're going to accomplish his purposes for our lives and for our church, then we need to consider what does it mean to be good? Because God has called us out of a culture in order to transform us to impact that culture, to become a blessing for that culture. And if we're going to be a blessing to our culture, then we're going to need to know what it means to be good. Our journey started with Jeremiah's framework for answering the crossroads questions that we face in life. And Jeremiah wrote, This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the good way and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Ask for the good way and walk in it. So what does it mean to be good? Well, to answer that question, we actually need to travel together to another place and time in the journey of the nation of Israel. To answer that question, we need to travel together to a time when the nation of Israel found itself on trial. So I want us to take a trip together into the courtroom. And the courtroom scene is found in the sixth chapter of the book of Micah. And like Jeremiah, Micah was a prophet from God. And Micah prophesied about a hundred years before Jeremiah prophesied. In the courtroom scene, that Micah describes in chapter six is actually one of the things that Jeremiah is pointing to when he tells the nation to ask for the good ways So let's step into the courtroom together. I'm going to read the first five verses of Micah chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you, mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Today we want to consider what it means to be good, which... The prophet will answer in a couple verses when we get to verse 8. But before we can correctly understand verse 8, we need to first look at verses 1 to 7. And as a side note, this is something really important that we need to remember when we seek to learn from the Bible and apply its truths to our lives. To accurately understand and apply any verse in the Bible, we must always understand it and apply it within the context of That it was written. We need to understand it within the context of the chapter it's in. We need to understand it within the context of the book it is found in. And we need to understand it within the context of where it fits within the overall story arc of the Bible. We've already done some of the context work for Micah 6, but let's do a little bit more for practice. So Micah was a prophet, we've covered that. He prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah during the time when the nation of Israel was split. And he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, three kings who reigned collectively from 750 BC to 686 BC. So this is approximately 700 years after the nation entered the promised land. And at this time, the kingdom is well on its way into decline. But there's still more than a hundred years before God will finally judge the nation. He's still going to give them a few more chances to repent and return to what he's called them to do. But a hundred years from now, during Jeremiah's time, he will judge the nation. He will kick them out of the promised land, and he will send them into exile in Babylon. Babylon. So now that we've got the context of where Micah fits into the story, let's look at the structure of the book itself. The book of Micah contains three distinct prophecies, all of them pointing to the coming exile, but all of them with this message of hope that the exile could be avoided if the people would return to the paths God has laid out for them. In the courtroom scene, which we're interested in today, is found in the third of Micah's prophecies, which takes up chapters 6 and 7 of the book. So now we have the overall context. We have the structure of the book. and Now we're ready to dive in and apply these verses. And so in verses 1 to 5, God sets the stage and makes his case against Israel. He calls to court to order and calls all of creation as his witnesses. Because creation stands throughout time as the testimony of who God is and of his power. In Psalm 19, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And night after night, they declare knowledge. And in Romans 1, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God calls the courtroom to order, and he lays out his charge against his people. With all of creation as his witness, God charges his people with a breach of contract. He charges them with breaching the Mosaic covenant which he made with them. And if you've never had the fortune of sitting through a business law class, or three of them which I had to do in college, then let's briefly review. Whether it's a biblical covenant or a legal contract, a covenant or contract requires five simple things. It requires an intention to enter into a legal relationship with one another. It requires an offer, an express readiness to do something by one party. It requires an acceptance of that offer by the other party. And it requires consideration. What benefit will the one party give to the other party if they do what they say they will do? And then it requires capacity the capacity of both parties to enter into the contract with each other. And God and Israel had entered into a valid contract with one another. And now God is charging Israel with breaking that contract. He made the contract with them after the exodus from Egypt. And then they renewed the contract within each other just before he brings them into the promised land. And what we see in the courtroom is that God makes a clear message of accusation. But the clear message of accusation does not include an announcement of pending disaster because God is gracious. Because God is gracious, he's not canceling the contract. He's called them into the courtroom to try and get them to comply with the contract. He interrogates them and challenges them. He says, what have I done to you? Have I burdened you? Answer me. It's passionate and direct, but there's this tender pleading in his voice trying to call them back. He's ready to hear the evidence against himself. He gives them the opportunity he says, is there something I have done to drive you away? Is there something I have done to encourage your apathy and your neglect? Is there something I have done to let you down? Or is there somehow I failed you? He goes on. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from slavery. I gave you leaders to guide you. Even when you rebelled, I still protected you in the wilderness. And then I brought you into the promised land. In effect, he says, hey guys, I've held up my end of the bargain. What about you? And then in verse 6 and 7, we see the nation's response and their offer to comply with the contract. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with a thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And at first blush when we read this, they seem willing, if not even eager, to comply with the sacrificial system. In fact, they almost seem to be going overboard, saying, "What is it, God, that we need to do to get back into Your good graces? Really, what do we need to give You, God? We'll we'll do anything. Do You want burnt offerings, God?" We have to understand the burnt offering was the most costly offering because it consumed the entire animal. There was nothing left at the end of the burnt offering for them to eat in celebration. It'd be like going to a barbecue with a bunch of friends and putting all the meat on the grill and then just watching together as it all burned to ashes and having nothing left to eat. But they say, how about year-old calves, God? And we have to understand that you could sacrifice a calf as young as seven days old. And so the year-old calf was considered the best sacrifice. Because as you raised that calf for the entire year, as you fed it and nurtured it and it grew, you invested a lot into it. And so you were investing a significant sacrifice when you sacrificed a year-old calf. They say, but God, and if one's not enough, how about we give you a 1,000? And let's not stop with the meat, rivers of olive oil, God. Well, but if that's not enough, We'll give you our children, God. And what we see is that the people are actually offended by God's accusation because the people think that they are righteous. The people actually think that they are being good. And this is exactly the mindset that we increasingly find in our society and our culture. Look at what I'm doing, I'm pretty good. Look at all the good things I do. Why wouldn't God be happy with me? The nation of Israel clearly thought, and our nation and our culture clearly thinks that being good just means following the rules. And oh, by the way, we get to define and redefine the rules for ourselves, don't we? The Israelites appear to be following the rules, and we may appear to be following the rules, but they were seeking to reconcile themselves to God through an outward obedience instead of through an inward transformation. They are willing, if not eager, to give God what they have, but not who they are. Their response shows that they still don't really understand what it means to be good. Because what we see is they've replaced a quality of worship with a quantity of worship. They've tried to shift their focus away from the reason for the sacrifice and instead focus on the quantity of their sacrifice. And what we need to see is that being good is about more than just following the rules. And don't get me wrong, following the rules is still important. But being good is about more than following the rules. Being good is about why we are following the rules, and being good is about how we are following the rules, as much as it is about following the rules. As Christ says in Luke 18, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he looked down and he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Because God does not desire ritualistic performance. He desires the surrender of our spirits. The sacrifices were supposed to be outward expressions of an inner trust and a dependence on God. They were supposed to be outward expressions of thankfulness because of God's grace and God's mercy. They were supposed to be outward expressions of an inner understanding of the nation's sinfulness and their need of salvation. What does it mean to be good? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God was not throwing out the sacrificial system. But what God was saying was that without the right motives, without moral virtue, virtue in moral actions, sacrificial worship is a spiritless act in which God takes absolutely no pleasure. He has shown you, oh mortal, the first thing we must recognize if we're going to be good. good is who is who. And quite simply, God is God and we are not. God is limitless, but we are quite limited. God makes the rules and we don't. It's his plan we should be following Not our plan that we should be asking him to bless. And far too often, that's exactly what we do, isn't it? Far too often, we go before God and we ask him to bless what we are doing before stopping and asking what it is he wants us to be doing. And then we get upset when things don't work out the way we wanted them to. We need to see that the passage has taken a turn and it's become very personal. The court case begins against his people, but now we've moved to the individual level. He has shown you, O mortal. He has shown you. He has shown me. He has shown each one of us. He has shown us what is good. It's personal. It's relational. And it's inclusive. He's connecting each individual with the accusation so that not one can claim it's not about them. And he does this because he understands our tendency to compare ourselves with each other. Hey, I'm not as bad as he is. I'm certainly not as bad as she is. Did you see what they did? God can't possibly be upset with me. And what Micah wants us to see is that we can't simply hide as a face in the crowd because it's not about a comparison with each other. It's about what God requires of each of us as, as individuals. And what does it take to be good? What does the Lord require of you? Three simple things. To be good, first he says we must act justly. We must act It's not enough to think about justice. It's not enough to just say that we think people should be treated fairly. We must take action to ensure that they are treated fairly. As we journey through our lives and all the places that we go and all of our dealings, are we dealing fairly with people or are we simply looking out for our own best best interests? Are we negotiating for every last dollar to ensure we get the best possible deal? Are we treating others fairly, fairly, or perhaps even being generous in our dealings with others? Are we concerned with equity of pay and livable wages, availability of affordable housing, accessibility to quality health care, and healthy food? Are our actions consistent with our beliefs? We campaign to end sex trafficking, and yet we're addicted to pornography. We advocate for family values, and yet our rates of sexual promiscuity, divorce, and abuse are not statistically different than the culture that surrounds us. We talk about stewardship, and yet we live in debt. God says to be good, we must act justly. We can't just seek justice for ourselves, but we must actively seek justice for others because God has given us social and moral standards to follow in our relationships with others. What does it take to be good? First, we must act justly, and then we must love mercy. Love mercy. Love Love puts another's needs before our own. Love sacrifices itself for others. I love you not because of what you can do for me, but I love you and so I do for you. Mercy is a responsibility towards weaker members of our society. Mercy insists on the rights of others. Mercy shows kindness to others. Mercy follows through on commitments to help others. If we love mercy, then we do not value our positions on issues above God's commandments to love one another. As Scott Sauls writes, wherever love dominates the environment, it's no condemnation first and ethics after that. With Jesus, love establishes the environment for the morality conversation. It is not our repentance that leads to God's kindness, but God's kindness that leads to our repentance. After 18 years of pastoral ministry, I have never met a person who fell in love with Jesus because a Christian scolded them about their ethics. Have you? What we see is that the first two requirements of being good are oriented toward a human ethic that is grounded in God's character, These first two requirements relate to how we interact with each other and how we interact with our society. If we're going to be a blessing to our society, then we must act justly and we must love mercy. And the third requirement, if we want to be good, the third requirement relates to how we interact with God. The requirements are moving from external to internal because acting justly And loving mercy in a way that is good is only possible if we have a right relationship with God for going to be good then we must walk humbly with our God and we often get humility all wrong we think that to be humble means that we must somehow put ourselves down somehow we must think less of ourselves but humility is not thinking less of yourselves. Humility is thinking about yourself less. Humility that puts ourselves down is actually a false humility that is both dishonoring and insulting to God. Because God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God says he has made you for purpose. God says that he has given you skills and gifts that he wants you to use to be a blessing. Humility is agreeing with God about who we are. And it's also agreeing with God about who he is. Humility is understanding and admitting that we are sinners in need of a savior. Humility is living in humble dependence on God instead of living in arrogant independence without God. When we walk humbly, we have honest fellowship with him, and we have honest fellowship with those around us. When we are walking humbly with God, we don't walk in self-centeredness. We walk in other-centeredness. We walk with our lives centered on God and therefore centered on the people God loves. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah was prophesying to a generation that was preoccupied with ritual, and he was calling them back to relationship. He was calling them back to a right relationship with others and a right relationship with God. They were devoted to ceremony, but Micah was calling them back to the weightier issues of the law and we are being called back to the weightier issues of the law too. This is what Christ is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and altar offer your gift. Because the relationship is more important than the ritual. And the ritual will only be honoring to God if the relationships are right first. The covenant is supposed to impact all areas of our lives. God doesn't want a ritualistic relationship. He wants a heart relationship. God doesn't want us to follow the rules because we have to. God wants us to follow the rules because we want to. God wants us to follow the rules because we desire to. God wants us to follow the rules, because if we're in right relationship with him, we actually won't think of them as rules at all. Because the covenant is not just about what we do on Sunday. But even more so, the covenant is about how we live from Monday to Saturday. And it's not that Sunday is unimportant. It's not that religious ritual is unimportant. In fact, the rituals are extremely important. The gathering together of the body of Christ as his church is crucial. The celebration of ordinances together, which we will do shortly, is crucial. But without relationship, form without substance is not pleasing to God. God's sovereignty stretches over all aspects of our lives the Israelites were offering God everything except the one thing that he desired from them, their hearts and their obedience. Micah 6.8 is one of the most succinct and powerful expressions of God's essential requirements for us in the entire Bible. And it is echoed by Christ in Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself because all the law and the prophets hang On these two commandments. When we find ourselves at the crossroads, Jeremiah tells us to ask for the good ways and what is good, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Our coming together is the body of Christ. Our songs of praise, our offerings, and our prayers are pleasing to God when they are outward expressions of our inner trust and dependence on Him. They're pleasing to God when they are outward expressions of our thankfulness for His grace and His mercy towards us. They're pleasing to God when they are outward expressions of our inner understanding that we are sinners in need of a Savior. As we prepare ourselves to participate together in the ritual that Christ instituted on the night of his death, we must consider our relationships. We must consider our relationship with God and we must consider our relationships with others. As we walk through our lives from Monday to Saturday, are we acting justly in all of our interactions? Where do we need to take action in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our communities to ensure that others are being treated fairly? As we walk through our lives from Monday to Saturday, are we expressing loving mercy? Are we actively fulfilling our responsibilities towards weaker members of our society. And as we walk through our lives from Monday to Saturday, are we walking humbly with God? Are we walking in humble dependence upon him? Or are we walking by ourselves in arrogant independence?